Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Listen, my beloved. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, after last week's snowstorm, I was a little nervous that y'all were going to come at me with pitchforks if I preached on spring today. And then lo and behold, it thawed. So here we go. We are in Narnia for two more weeks. Next week, we are popping into the next book in the series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, to hear about a little boy named Eustace Scrub and his encounter with Aslan. So today, we are closing out our journey through the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And to do so, we're going to pop back in the story. As the children and the beavers are making their way to Aslan's camp, during which you will remember that they encountered Father Christmas, They are being followed, pursued by the White Witch, accompanied by her dwarf servant and Edmund, who is very much regretting that he ever ate that Turkish delight and who very much does not want to be in the company of the White Witch any longer. As the witch's sleigh hurtles along, Edmund notices that things have changed in Narnia, which you will know by now was always winter and never Christmas. Edmund starts to see patches of grass peeking through the snow and has to roll up his sleeves as it gets warmer and warmer. Eventually, there isn't enough snow for the sleigh to travel over, so the witch and the dwarf and Edmund, tied up at the wrists, are forced to walk. And things keep changing. They keep changing. It's, it's not just Tom. Nope. <laughs> this is going to be fun. It's on. Yes. Did you do that? Great. I'm going to look at you, okay? All right. Things keep changing. There was, writes Lewis, no trace of the fog now. The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across it from time to time. In the wide glades, there were primroses. 
A light breeze sprang up, which scattered drops of moisture from the swaying branches and carried cool, delicious scents against the faces of the travelers. The trees began to come fully alive. The larches and birches were covered with green, the laburnums with gold. Soon, the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. As the travelers walked under them, the light also became green. A bee buzzed across their path. Next slide. This is no thaw, said the dwarf, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed, I tell you. This is Aslan's doing. This is no thaw. This is spring. We are people well-versed in thaws. A few warm days melts most of the snow. The sun peaks out for two hours. The temperature rises to a balmy three degrees. And we've got our shorts on and the windows open and a little umbrella in our fruity LaCroix drinks. Thaws are little glimmers of hope that remind us that spring is, in fact, coming. And we need that hope. After a weekend of bitterly cold temperatures, howling winds, and blowing snow, we will take the hope of spring wherever we can find it. John Whitfleet, my professor of worship at Calvin, told us once about a tradition his family had for a long time while their kids were growing up. They would pick one Friday in February, when they were really good and sick of winter and cold and darkness, and they would throw a party. They'd crank up the heat in the house, and the kids and their friends would come home from school and swap out their snowsuits for Hawaiian shirts and lays. And John would grill burgers and brats on the barbecue, and lemonade was passed around in little glasses with umbrellas. And this party wasn't random, right? It was designed with a very specific purpose in mind, to remind each other what summer was like, what they had experienced in the past so that they could look forward in hope to the day when summer would come again. And believe it or not, there is a fancy Greek word for this, which is called anamnesis. Let's try that together. Anamnesis, yes. Whitfleet defines anamnesis this way. It is to savor the identity-shaping significance of some event, past, present, or future. In other words, it's the practice of living into, of acting out the reality we know to be true because of things that have happened, that are happening, or that will happen, right? So living as though it is summer, because we have experienced summer before, and we know that summer will come again. Anamnesis. The Song of Songs, this book, is essentially a book of anamnesis. Many of us likely think of this book as a random, slightly explicit love story plopped into the middle of scripture for no apparent reason other than to make us really uncomfortable in middle school. I would like to argue, in line with some scholars, including Ellen Davis of Duke Divinity School, 
that the book plays a significant theological role. Because the Song of Songs looks backward and it looks forward, and it provides an imaginative telling of how we ought to live in the present. It calls us into anamnesis. So when looking backward, the book looks all the way back to the very beginning. The Song of Songs is a love story between a shepherd and his beloved that takes place in a garden with lush fruit, blossoms, and animals. The language evokes a paradise, a place of harmony and joy. It's not hard when you read this book to picture the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, the original two lovebirds, dwelt in harmony with each other, with God, and with creation. More pointedly, the author of the Song of Songs makes a clear reference in poetry to Genesis. So we've already had our Greek lesson for this first day of the new year, when your brains are all really really with it, right? So here's your Hebrew lesson. In chapter 7, verse 10 of the Song of Songs, the woman says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And the Hebrew word for desire is this, shuka, and it is used only one other time in all of Scripture. In Genesis 3, verse 16, where as part of the curse, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, God says that man will rule over woman, and her desire, her tsuka, will be for him. So the Song of Songs, then, is a reversal, a reimagining of things, of this curse. But it's not swayed towards inequality or dominance in the other direction. Next. Throughout the poem, the woman says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. This is a partnership. This is unrestrained, self-giving mutuality. This is a depiction of holy, good, loving relationships, of how any relationship should be. I am for you as you are for me. And then the poem looks forward. For this language of newness, new creation of spring, is echoed at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The Song of Songs, then, is a poem, a song, found almost right in the middle of Scripture. 
that echoes the goodness of that first paradise when all was right between God and his people and points us forward to the goodness of that second paradise, the new creation, when all shall dwell together in love and harmony and right relationship. And because of that, in the present, the characters of the Song of Songs practice anamnesis. Their identities are shaped by what has been and by what will be. They live in self-giving mutuality and love. They sing the song of songs, the best of songs, the greatest of songs, the most perfect depiction of life. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the time for singing has come. This is no thaw. This is spring. On the first morning of a new year, many of us are, without having known the fancy Greek word at all, we are practicing anamnesis. We are thinking about the past and thinking about the future and letting those things inform how we are going to live in the present. Right? We imagine our future self, who we want to be, and we think about our past self and who we have been, and we make goals for how to get our past self to look a little bit more like our desired future self. And if you are anything like me, you will stick with those resolutions for two, maybe three weeks. <laughs> and then somehow, the gym just seems to be a little further of a drive than it was two weeks ago. And the frozen pizza is just an easier meal after a long day than that balanced meal you had planned. And after a long day of important meetings, playing mahjong on your phone for four hours while watching TV involves so much less brain power than reading a book. We might experience a thaw, a slight change for a time. But then all our old habits and our old ways will creep back like a cold front moving down from Georgian Bay. And we'll feel all the same frustration and shame that we felt at this time last year and the year before that. And we'll wonder if we could ever really change. Or maybe on this New Year's Day, as you look back over the past year, or the past many years, your past makes it hard to imagine that there could be anything different in your future, that winter could ever actually end. And we're not just talking about healthy habits or reading more books here. We're talking about the family that you grew up in that was full of dysfunction, and the unhealthy traits that have been passed down from generation to generation. We're talking about the addiction that you've wrestled with your whole life, to alcohol, to drugs, to porn, to shopping, to gambling, to food, and the constant worry that you might slip back into your old ways. We're talking about the person that you betrayed years ago, 
and the relationship that you are sure can never be repaired. Or the abuse that you endured that keeps you from fully trusting people. Or the mental illness you've struggled with for so long now, you can't imagine that life could be any different. For many of us, when we try to practice anamnesis, all we can do is see how our identities have been shaped by our past. And it's hard to imagine that the future could look any different. And yet, and yet, grace says that something different is always possible because something different has already happened. In our call to worship this morning, we heard a phrase from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. At the heart of Christian anamnesis is the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is this past event that informs who we are. And so here we get really the grammar of anamnesis. So permit me one more language lesson. The statement, the old has gone, in the Greek is written in the aorist tense. And the aorist tense indicates a singular past event, something that happened just once. The new is here is written in the perfect tense. And that tense indicates an ongoingness, a continuation of the event. So Philip Hughes writes in his commentary that this tense, the perfect tense, indicates that the old things became and continue to be new. For the newness of God's new creation is not a newness that in course of time palls and grows old and outmoded. It is a newness that is everlastingly new. This is no thaw. This is spring. Christ came into the world he created, died, and was raised to life. In the middle of the story, God entered the story and changed it. He reconciled the world to himself. He reconciled us to himself. And it is this, not our past failures or the scars that we bear, it is this, Christ, that defines us. This is the truth that is at the core of our identity. And here's what's perhaps most amazing about this grace, about this identity-shaping truth. As we think about being new creations, about living into this identity, it doesn't mean that we somehow have to cast off or erase everything that has happened before us in shame. 
while we are called to live according to this newness that we have in Christ, it is not up to us to make this newness happen. Here's what Jamie Smith writes in his new book, How to Inhabit Time. Shame lives off the lie of spiritual self-improvement, which is why my past is viewed as a failure. Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story, is taken up into God and God's story. God is writing a new chapter of my life, not starting a new book after throwing out the first draft of my prior existence. In grace, God looks at my past and sees the sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting and show the world. And in the hands of such an artist, all my weaknesses are openings for strength, the proverbial cracks that let the light in. Even my sins and struggles hold the possibility for compassion and sympathy. Only such a God could make even my vices the soil in which he could grow virtue. God does not erase our past. Even the resurrected Christ bore the scars of his death. But by his astonishing power and mercy, God uses even our past, our stories, our experiences to do something new in and through us. So, on this first day of a new year, as we look back on what has been and as we look forward to what we hope will come, go ahead and make your goals. Write down your resolutions. It's good to have aspirations. But let me suggest one particular habit to perhaps develop this year. Write out in big letters on a card next to your bed or on your bathroom mirror or over your coffee pot the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17. If anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Remember, as you begin each day of 2023, that you are a new creation, that God is doing something new in and through you. And then let that truth shape who you are now. Practice anamnesis in your words, in your deeds, in your interactions with others. Live as one who is reconciled to God, made new in Christ Jesus. Remind yourself of these words of invitation, the words that promise that God's newness is everlastingly new. Arise, my darling my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. This is no thaw. This is spring. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to trust in your faithfulness. 
As we look back and look forward, may we remember that you have gone before us and you go ahead of us and everything we are is known by you. Take our lives, God, our histories, our experiences, our scars, and use us, our unique selves, to be agents of renewal, agents of mercy, agents of grace in this world. Conform us more and more into your likeness, that we might live in grateful obedience as a new creation, called to bear witness to the one who is making all things new. Thank you, God of time, that you sent your son into the world to reconcile the world to yourself. May we rest secure in that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.